I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you. It's January 19th. I've got a great show for you this week. In The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to talk about the essay, The Good Guy Badge, from The Devil's Notebook by Anton Zander LeVay. And we have an Agent Provocateur, Episode 9, with Darren Deicide coming up. And in the Creature Feature, I'm going to talk about George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. This is a series of books that I've been reading. Not to be mistaken with A Game of Thrones, which is also based on his books. Um, But I'm going to be talking about the novels themselves. Alright, so before we dive into the show, a couple things. Um testimonials. So I noticed I got a couple new testimonials on the iTunes account. Thank you very much for that. And if you haven't done it yet and you do use iTunes, I would encourage you and thank you for going and leaving me a review and a rating. Um, It's important because it puts me above the other pretenders that are out there, the other shitty podcasts (laughs) that may or may not be just a little smidgen shittier than mine. Um, But yeah, even if you don't have iTunes, you can actually go to the website 9centspodcast.com under the contact tab and leave me your own testimonial. It's on the testimonials page, just a little form, or you can always email it to info at 9centspodcast.com. I definitely appreciate them all, and I put them all on the website, so use a pseudonym if you don't want me to use your real name, Um, but I plan on... I plan on adding a little bit more information like where I got them from, whether it was from iTunes or email or the website or whatever, and adding a rating system. So I'm going to have to base the ratings for the past episodes on the content of the testimonials. And if I get it wrong, then you can always correct me if you want to go back and look and see what I gave it. Um, Now, I would like to also address last week's live podcast uh, episode. So this is the get to know the voices of nine cents, uh, me, (laughs) the Adam version of it. We're going to be doing one for every one of the contributors. So up next is um, Aaron. I believe it's next week. I don't have a specific date and time as of yet, but as I get that information, I will put it out for everyone. So um, you can tune in live and and watch her and her, um, I guess, questioner (laughs) for interviewer. Uh, for her segment. Uh, it should be interesting, and, um, you know, they're, they're interesting individuals, so it's going to be a lot of fun no matter what. Uh, hopefully they don't have the technical issues that I had. So when Erin and I were doing it last week, we had internet problems galore. Just trying to get her on the uh, Google Hangout to record live was a pain in the ass. We did finally get her, but we weren't even able to have her audio working, so she had to call my cell phone. I used uh, <laughs> I used speakerphone to get her on hearing and talking. It was very much jimmy-rigged, not very high quality at all, but we got through it. I hope it was entertaining in some way. I don't know if it was. <clears throat> I do have it saved. My goal is that once all of the contributors that want to do these 
have done them, I will then start packaging those live podcasts and putting them out on the website and on YouTube for everyone who was uh, unable to tune in live to watch. And I do have to say, you know, we had uh, a number of people tune in and it was very much appreciated. Um, There was a little bit of back and forth with the audience, which was always nice to hear their feedback and and, feedback. you know, find out specific questions that they may have in reply to our replies, (laughs) you know, so it it was, it was a lot of fun, technical issues aside, and I look forward to doing other things like it in the future, and I do have a number of things planned for that, so, you know, just keep either listening or check the social network pages, uh, whichever social network you're part of, and I will update you accordingly. Okay, so also I I sent out a a bit of a feedback request. So I sent out on different social networking sites um, asking people what they would like to see in Nine Cents that wasn't here already, what we would like to see changed um, uh, or, or maybe adjusted a little bit. I got a lot of feedback. Primarily, it was focused around two areas. So one was an extension of the Devil's Advocate segment, making it longer, uh, speaking more specifically to Satanism. Um, This is a difficult notion because, you know, there's only so many times I can say the same things, um, and the the information is out there, you know, in so many different places, and it's been spoken to in the same way for so long, for me to add my own creative spin and have it be worthwhile becomes a challenge. Um, Certainly one I'm up to the task for, so I will try to elaborate a little bit more on those segments than I have in the past. Um, Realistically, that, you know, it's the Creature Feature and the Devil's Advocate segments are shorter um, because obviously there are only two little segments and the Infernal Informant has two stories in it. So, I treat the Infernal segment, Infernal Informant segment as basically half of the show, and the Devil's Advocate and the Creature Feature as the other half, um, just, you know, split up differently. So, I will try to add more content for the satanic element of it, but what I think is important, and I hope isn't lost, is that no matter what segment we're speaking to on this podcast, it is inherently through a satanic lens. So we may be talking about news, but we're giving you our own third side perspective of that news. So at times that may line up with other people that you've heard speak to the specific story, and it may not, but it is our individual voices, um, not a a partisan line or a party line or a network's opinion. It is a satanic opinion. It is our very different at times opinion. So each segment is inherently by itself satanic, and I want to make sure that everyone understands that, because I I do think it's important to understand. Um, The other part of feedback I was getting, really, was uh, history and Satanism. So, and this was very interesting, because I had just spoken to Robert Merciless um, about Rabid Crow Designs, and uh, you can, you know, check that out online, or you can check out the show notes um, for the first episode in January on NineCentsPodcast.com. And he had brought up uh, his love of um, de facto Satanism and history, 
I, I guess we'll say. And he has a couple really fantastic contributions to the Church of Satan website on that very, you know, line of, of de facto Satanists. So you should definitely go check that out. It's an interesting thought, history and Satanism. I mean, the, the podcast itself is nine cents, you know, a satanic perspective of our modern world. And so looking at it through history is sort of changing what this podcast is supposed to be, um, a focus on the here and now, which is very much a satanic ideal. Uh, but I do like the idea. So I'm going to see what I can do to bring um, that part of it. But again, it's not going to be a focus and it's not going to be something that is, you know, a, a weekly, uh, you know, like a weekly segment, for example. Um and then, you know, for everyone listening to the podcast now that doesn't follow any of the social network sites, shoot me an email. I mean, let me know what, what you like, what you don't like specifically, and then what you would like to see changed. Because I want to make sure that this is worth your valuable time. And the only way that I can do that is if I hear from you. If I don't hear from you, then I'll just assume I'm perfect in every way, like Mary Poppins or something. And... <laughs> That was a weird reference. Um, practically perfect in every way. <laughs> and I know I'm not. So uh, let me know. Let me know. I get surprisingly little hate mail. <laughs> so come on. Hate on me for a minute here, people. Um, and then I got some comments on the new intro. So I <clears throat> I love this new intro. I And I know every year I go through a bit of a, a withdrawal from the last year's intro. I still really love the first year's intro. Um, I really, really like the second year's intro. Third year's is great. I mean, just great. So this this is going to be interesting. Um, it's, it's going to take a little bit of getting used to. Not because it's... I mean, yes, it is dramatically different. But it's, uh, it's a completely different take. Usually I try to keep around cinematic tones. And this is very much um, a little more atmospheric. Not not as cine openly, overtly cinematic, we'll say, like adventurous cinematic. This is much more um, horror atmospheric. But uh, Jeremiah Crowe's insufferable one-man show uh, composed it, original composition for this podcast, and I love it. I think it's fantastic. So I'm really pleased to hear um, some feedback from you guys who like it. And for those of you who don't, well, it's either going to grow on you or you're going to skip past it or you're going to stop listening. I, I don't have any control over that. You know, that this is your decision. So hopefully you can put up with it. Hopefully it grows on you if you do not love it already. And if not, sorry, nothing I can do for you. <laughs> I'm not changing it. Um, and that's it. So I, I do want to also touch really quickly before we dive into the show proper here. At the top of the show was a drop that someone sent me on my Google Voice account. So that's uh, area code 801-899-6168. And that just goes directly to a Google voicemail. No one's going to answer it or anything. And they just left me the little segment. So thank you to whomever that was. I really appreciate it. And if you want to leave your own intro, I would love you to. I have a very few of them and I've been cycling through them. Uh, I could go back to all the original episodes and copy all of them, but that's a whole lot of work and I've got a life, so that's probably not going to happen. But if anyone out there wants to do that or just send me one of your own intros, I would very much, again, appreciate it. So uh, thank you for the gentleman who left that for me. Uh, it's great. And let's see. I think that's going to do it. Should we? Yeah. Let's go ahead and start the show. The Devil's Advocate. In nomine de nostris, excelsior. In the name of Satan. 
am an active member, I do not speak for the Church of Satan. Man is a selfish creature. Everything in life is a selfish act. Man is not concerned with helping others, yet he wants others to believe he is. Inasmuch as selfishness is akin to pride, and vanity, considered the devil's work, the first rule of the prideful is to make an exhibition of piety and charity with a good guy badge to pin on his lapel. This is a brilliant essay written by Anton Zander LeVay, and it is featured in the Devil's Notebook. I believe Feral House has an ebook version of this, uh, but you also can get the print version, which is fantastic for reference and just sort of uh, curling up in a blanket and reading. It's fantastic. All right, so the good guy badge. Uh, the premise is this. It's natural to be selfish and to mask it with a good guy badge. This is a, a sort of human nature thing. Um, certainly not a satanic thing. And let's explain a little bit. Society, by and large, tells us there's nothing wrong with a selfish act. Unless, of course, you're doing it for selfish reasons. <laughs> a little absurd, I know. But you can mask that selfish act through a greater cause, through a corporation, through a religion. Is there a difference? Um, you can do it by saying it's for a greater good, thereby defining yourself as good. You're the good guy, and you've got a badge to prove it. This is what I did for the greater good. No, no, no it wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. It wasn't because I liked it. It, it. it was because everyone should do it, right? Okay, so this speaks to behaviors being relative. I'm reminded of a drill instructor I had um, in Augusta, Georgia. Love that state, uh, Georgia. Beautiful. Uh, anyway, this drill instructor, a fantastic woman, she said that perception is nine-tenths of reality. I'd never thought of it like that before. Uh, reality being a slave to perception. At the time, it was, it was a really powerful notion, and it drove my behaviors since. This idea that I... And this is a very satanic idea, too. I mean, let, let's look at it like this. Um, the definitions of good and bad. Good is what you like. Bad is what you don't like. It's very simple. And everyone believes this. But some people like to attach things to it. They like to attach um, historic, uh, historical books uh, defining good and bad as absolutes. Um, they like to say, well, my, my bishop or my priest or my pope says this is bad, so it must be bad. My boss says it's bad, so it must be bad. In that context, okay, whatever. You think it's bad because of that context, fine. But to me, oh no, no, it's not bad at all. But these people, the types of people that have to use the good guy badge, they're worthless. They're weak. They have nothing of substance. And so they need that absolute definition. Because without it, they're just floating in space. They have nothing to ground them. They certainly can't get by with their own abilities or talents because they don't have any. They have to latch on to something greater. Um, I would describe it like a superhero. So, for example, uh, superheroes don't ever really kill anyone. Like, they beat up the bad guy, they put him away. They are the good guy, look at my badge big S on my chest or whatever it is. But they never really defeat the guys. They always come back. If they didn't keep coming back, then they wouldn't be so special. They wouldn't be so super. I mean, you can only get by with your own talent when you have no talent as long as there's someone 
worse than you. It's pretty simple. Superheroes love to do this in stories, and it's sort of personified in this really fantastic cartoon called Megamind, where, in this case, it was the bad guy that had beat the good guy, and he was just sort of floating. He had nothing to define himself anymore. He wasn't bad because there wasn't a good there. And so, in, in the context of this conversation, if he was a good superhero and he killed off the bad guy, how good can he really be? There's nothing to balance making him a good guy. There's no one out there doing things that he can point at and call bad. So he's the good guy. You see this in religion. Satan's the best friend the church ever had. If it wasn't for him, it wouldn't have been in business so long. Without a Satan, there's no reason to be a Christian. There's no reason to be good if there's no evil. They need that balance. They need... And, you know, the good guy, the individual who puts on the good guy badge, they are terrified of meritocracy because they don't have anything to bring to the table. They cannot stand the idea of having to stand on your own two feet without something bigger and better than themselves telling them what's good and bad. Because if they had to do that, they would fall. That's why you see third world countries. That's why you see the poor. That's why you see addicts all turning to Jesus because he'll hold them up. Oh yeah, you were a bad guy, but now you're with us. Now you're a good guy. Here's a badge. See them people that didn't turn to us? They're the bad guys. You are now defined by the other person instead of yourself. That's the good guy badge. It's smoke and mirrors. It's a fancy um, magician's trick. Don't look at me. Look over there. I'm defined by their bad behavior. Because I don't do that bad behavior anymore. I'm good and of worth. It's irrational. And in fact, uh, a little quote to pull here, irrational self-interest and undeserved self-righteousness are hallmarks of the good guy badge. And yeah, you even see it in Satanism. I'll say pseudo-Satanists, but they still latch into Satanism from time to time. It's this need to belong to something bigger and badder than themselves, something more powerful. And it's easy to see that if, if you don't have anything of worth and you read the Satanic Bible, you get these notions like, I am my own God. I am powerful. And they come trying to jump in thinking that Satanism is about a community or something, thinking that they're going to find friends, thinking that people are going to hold them up on a, on a pedestal. But guess what? It's not, and you're not. So Satanism does not allow them to pin that good guy badge on them. And sometimes you see people with this behavior, it's always someone else. They always have to misdirect you. It's not my fault that I couldn't come through with what I promised. These other things got in my way, or I really would have done that, I promise. I want to help you, but I just can't because of these other things got in my way. Psychic vampires. Religion is the biggest proponent of this, I mean, by and large. Well, maybe <laughs> maybe outside of election years. Politicians, this is their bread and butter. Uh, obviously, they just want to get elected. They just want to, to be in power, to get the money, to get the influence. But they're going to do it with the good guy badge on. So they're doing it for you. It's in your best self-interest to put me in office so I can ignore your phone calls, ignore your decisions in legislation, and do my own thing, whatever my corporate masters want me to do. But the reality is they don't work for you. They're not doing it for you. However, they say they are and they convince you they are. Who remembers? Yes, we can. Did we? <laughs> I, 
I fucking fed into this thing too. With open eyes, I have to admit. But still, it's that idea of, uh, well, they don't represent me, but they're the better of two evils? <laughs> that is the ultimate good guy badge! We're all bad! We are all horrible! But I'm not as bad as that guy. Vote me. I'm a good guy. I got my badge. Oh, it is the sad and the worst, worthless sheep. They, they just want to feel like they're of worth. So they have to pin that badge on. They have no personal value. So they have to pin that badge on. And they usually go to the big, bright, shining badge. It looks like a cross and the dude supposedly died on it. Uh, you see this in the green movement. Oh, the green environmentally conscious people. Yeah, if you're doing it for yourself, that's fine. But the majority of these people aren't doing it for themselves. They're doing it for the greater good. And then they shame you when you're not. Sometimes it has to do with laws. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just a nosy neighbor saying, Oh, you uh, you don't have a Prius. Look at my Prius. I'm, uh, I'm more environmentally conscious than you. Really? Well, that's, that's really nice. Have you done anything of worth as a human being other than buying that Prius and trying to shame me for not having one? Probably not, but I got the Prius. I'm a good guy. Look at my badge. Uh, PETA supporters. Hey, I love animals too, but these guys are fucking fanatics. Outside of their sexy commercials that they make for Super Bowl that never get aired, outside of their uh, gigantic corporation that euthanizes more animals than most individual uh, shelters, by the way. They're the good guys because they're fighting for animal rights in the most horrible possible ways that you can. But, 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 they're the good guys. We love animals. You don't love animals as much as we do. You support uh, euthanasia at, at homeless or at uh, uh, um, <laughs> animal shelters. You're a horrible animal lover. You're not a member of PETA. We're the good guys. Look at our badge. You even see this with whole food fanaticists. Uh, these people who just health food nut jobs. They never realize that Whole Foods is a corporation built on their pure irrational behaviors. Oh, well, migraines were, were grown on a Austrian mountaintop, and, and they were so much healthier because a nun sang to them every morning. And now I get to pay $20 to be a better person because I shop at Whole Foods. Look at my badge. I'm the good guy. Fuck you. If it wasn't for the Whole Foods that you shop at, what? Is it that you've done of worth exactly? Let's strip away all the tie-dyed t-shirts and your 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 fancy flip-flops and your, your your really shitty basically just minivans uh, that that run on partial electrical energy. Let's strip all that away. Uh, brush the dreadlocks out of your eyes. What have you done as a human being of worth? Not much, right? You're a good guy, badge. You're not a good guy. You're a good guy badge. You just need an audience. Every good guy badge needs an audience. Without someone listening to them, they're just a sad person on a bench. Without someone listening to them, without a bad guy to point at, without someone to define what they are not, they are nothing. What's amazing about this essay and Olive wrote, is that it addresses that specifically. It gives you the awareness of the good guy badges. And through that awareness, you can tear them down. You can point them out for what and who they are. Or in this case, specifically, what they are not. 
Without that good, good guy badge, they are nothing. And it's important to note that. In our world, there are so few people of significance. There are so few people of substance. Good guy badges, that's their only substance. It's all smoke and mirrors, though. Be someone of substance. Fuck the good guy badges. We don't need them. We have ourselves to allow us to define goals and to achieve the goals. We don't need a good guy badge. And in fact, in most cases, let them call us the bad guy. Hell, let's adopt it. Let's let's herald it. Isn't that what Satanism is about? A little bit of theater here. We're the bad guys. We're the ones that don't apologize for our self-interested behavior. We do it for us. What do you do it for? Your badge. So shiny. Let's move on to the... Oh, actually, let's move on to Agent Provocateur. I am not a liberal nor a conservative. I am not a Democrat nor a Republican. I am not a socialist nor a capitalist. I am not an authoritarian and I'm definitely not fighting for your cause. I belong to no party. I support no politicians. I am loyal to no state. And your cause celebra means nothing to me. I am Darren Deicide, Agent Provocateur. Hello and welcome to Agent Provocateur. I am your lovely and charming host, Darren Deicide. Welcome back to my underground of global affairs and political blasphemy. No thought crime is too criminal down here. And that's why today we're going to talk about drugs. Nancy Reagan, you're shaking in your skin right now, I know, because we're not going to talk about the virtues of drugs. That's what those just-say-no types would have you believe is the end-all, be-all of the drug debate. That's because half of them wouldn't have much of a career if it weren't for drugs, even though they'd never admit to it. Come on, Nancy, you know what I'm talking about. Don't make me bring up the 80s in Latin America and the border between the U.S. and Mexico. But... The border between the U.S. and Mexico perhaps is not as interesting as the borders around Colorado, Washington, and Afghanistan right now. That's right, Afghanistan. When critics talk about our intervention in Afghanistan, they almost inevitably fall back on the oil issue. I'm sure you've heard all the slogans before. No blood for oil. It's the oil, stupid. No war for oil. But next time your crunchy, patchouli-smelling friends start shouting oil slogans, ask them, have you ever chanted, Stop Afghani Pot, or Free the Opium? I doubt it. And it's not just because their eyes are glazed over from smoking either one of them. It's because very few people want to talk about the other motive that helped drive the United States to Afghanistan. Our love for drugs. Time for some background. Today, Afghanistan is the single largest supplier of opiates to the world market. Well, if you don't count Pfizer and other healthcare industry hustlers. According to the UN, Afghanistan accounts for 92% of the world market on opiates. Let me just run that number again by 92%. Afghanistan is also the global leader in cannabis exportation. It wasn't always that way. When the Taliban rose to power, opium production in Afghanistan practically ended 
According to the International Journal on Drug Policy, three-fourths of the world's heroin supply and 99% of Afghanistan's opium crop was eradicated during Taliban rule. The Reagans were incompetent amateurs compared to the Taliban. Since the U.S. invasion and NATO occupation of Afghanistan, opium production has skyrocketed. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime estimate that 52% of Afghanistan's GDP comes from illegal drug trade. 52%! That's more than half of the country's economy being illegitimate! It's the world's red light district, for crying out loud. The infrastructure that once kept opium and cannabis at bay was destroyed, and now record levels of opium poppy cultivation are happening. Numbers that would have made an 80s Manhattan yuppie water at the mouth. So this isn't happening because drugs are legal. Opium is indeed illegal in Afghanistan, and U.S. forces are trying to work in collusion with the Karzai regime to reach the achievements of the Taliban, and they simply can't do it. The Taliban won the war on drugs that America continues to fight and lose. But... How hard are we really fighting, and who's on board? Reuters reported in a 2010 article that Russian drug czar Viktor Ivanov petitioned NATO to make it a goal to eradicate poppy fields, to which the NATO spokesman James Apathurai responded in a press conference, We cannot be in a situation where we remove the only source of income of people who live in the second poorest country in the world without being able to provide them with an alternative. Let them eat opium! Well, that's a wonderful notion, isn't it? But then, who's eating? In countless testimony, Afghani politicians readily admit that the old warlord system is back with opium being the primary commodity fueling them. Commander Anayatullah, the former police chief of Yawan, warns if we don't solve the problem now, there will be a day when all decisions will be made by smugglers. However, when on October 28, 2010, U.S. and Russian forces decided to work on a joint operation that destroyed $250 million worth of heroin and opium, President Karzai derided the operation as a violation of Afghan sovereignty. So what the hell is going on here? Once again, the bullshit radar should be going into the red. Lip service and action seem to be two different things on this issue. Could it be because of where that drug money is going? I'm going to guess that there aren't many degrees of separation between drug lords, jihadis, and arms smugglers. Just a couple of passes of the buck and drug money may very well be funding America's enemies. Now, all this conflicting information may seem confusing and you're probably wondering how the hell we got into this situation. However, never fear, because that's why I'm here and I have solved this problem of unabated drug money fueling enemies of America in a losing war. The states of Colorado and Washington are showing us the way, people. We just need to walk towards the light. Let the drugs free! We already invaded and more or less took over the damn place. Let's make it the 51st state. Now, I know there are some of you who are rubbed a little weird by the notion of letting Afghanistan join the Union. It's the name, isn't it? 
Afghanistan. It's not very Americana. I get it. Let's redub it Afghaniville. Does that work? Hear me out, folks. I have a very good case for bringing Afghaniville into the fold. Opium can easily be used to create morphine and codeine, two very important drugs in healthcare. The World Health Organization of the UN has ascertained an acute global shortage of opiate medicines such as codeine and morphine, and the International Council on Security and Development, an independent non-governmental think tank, speculates that worldwide prices of opiate-related painkillers would easily go down if opium were legalized and regulated for exportation from Afghanistan. There's a whole market just waiting. As of now, the international opium is regulated by what's called the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs. It's an international treaty that was signed off on in 1961. In fact, the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs is a treaty that internationally regulates many illicit substances, including cannabis. Minus a handful of countries, the treaty is enforceable around the world. Guess who's in that handful? Our old friends in Afghaniville. And how smart they are for it. When the treaty was adopted, the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, Bulletin on Narcotics, is quoted as saying, After a definite transitional period, all non-medical use of narcotic drugs such as opium smoking, opium eating, consumption of cannabis, hashish, marijuana, and chewing of cocoa leaves will be outlawed everywhere. This is a goal which workers in international narcotics control all over the world have striven to achieve for half a century. <laughs> oh, good luck with that. Colorado and Washington states just took the quantum leap of decriminalizing cannabis. I've been posting articles about this experiment on the Agent Provocateur Newswire, which can be found at facebook.com slash agent provocateur on nine cents. That's facebook.com slash agent provocateur on nine cents. I'm really glad for this step. And it really is a testimony to what a fantastically dynamic republic America is. There are a lot of parallels between this transition and the slow dismantling of alcohol prohibition, and I'm really excited to see what this can do. Almost every state government in the Union is running a brutal deficit, and if cannabis contributes to balancing the budgets of Colorado and Washington, we are going to see a precedent that will completely rock the way we look at how to handle this narcotic. I also have to be honest with you, I couldn't give less than a shit if people wanted to do recreational drugs. American ideals are pluralism and secularism, and trying to enforce prohibition is, in the minds of puritanical conservatives, just another way of trying to save everybody from themselves. Everybody in this country is trying to save somebody from themselves nowadays. They say it's for their own good, but how much condescension does it take to actually believe that? If you're an advocate of good old American libertarian principles, then the last vestige of autonomy that one has is their body, and the second government has authority over it, liberty is gone. So if you want to smoke your brains into oblivion, this is America. Go for it, my friend. I'm behind you 100%, because I believe in the American dream. Apparently... So did George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, 
James Monroe, Andrew Jackson, Zachary Taylor, and Franklin Pierce, all of whom have admitted in letters to smoking hemp. In fact, Thomas Jefferson maintained a poppy field on Monticello. And so, our new fledgling state, Afghaniville, would really just be engaging in the time-honored American tradition of being high as hell. Thomas Jefferson would be so proud of them. If Colorado and Washington do indeed set a new precedent through the legalization and taxation of cannabis, then what's good enough for them is good enough for the dope and smackheads out there. We'll all be contributing to the great American traditions of being on drugs. Welcome, Afghaniville. Legalize opium, balance the budget, and stop allowing drug money to get into the hands of jihadis. Agent Provocateur for President 2016. Thank you for tuning in. George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. This is from Wikipedia. I'm going to give you a little bit of an intro and then just talk about it here. A Song of Ice and Fire is a series of epic fantasy novels written by American novelist and screenwriter George R.R. Martin. Martin began the first volume of a series, A Game of Thrones, in 1991. He published it in 1996. Martin graduate, um, sorry, gradually extended his original intended trilogy to seven volumes, the fifth of which, A Dance of Dragons, or Dance with Dragons, took him five years to write before its publication in 2011. Martin's work on his sixth, The Winds of Winter, is still underway. The story of A Song of Ice and Fire takes place in the fictional continents Westeros and Essos, with a history of thousands of years. The point of view of each chapter in the story is a limited perspective of an assortment of characters that grows from nine in the first to 31 by the fifth of the novels. Three predominant stories interweave, a dynastic war among several families for control of Westeros, the rising threat of the dormant cold supernatural Others dwelling beyond an immense wall of ice on Westeros' northern border, and the ambition of Daenerys Targaryen, the exiled daughter of a king murdered in a civil war shortly before her birth, to return to Westeros with her fire-breathing dragons and claim her rightful throne. What is amazing? Now, HBO took this series and is making a Game of Thrones TV series, which is also fantastic, but it does deviate from the story in some pretty big ways the more you actually get into it. Um, so it's nice because you kind of get to relive the magic of this story through um, a completely adjusted lens. So you don't always know exactly what's going to happen because they do change sometimes. And then obviously because, you know, a show is a show, they have to combine... Uh, figures in order to move the, the scene along and stuff like that. Um, but this this series, I, I started reading because of the movie. And, you know, to be fair, reading, I'm, I'm listening to the audiobooks because I have a long drive to and from work. And so I'm currently about a quarter way through with the Dance of Dragons, Dance of Dragons, this, the last and latest of the books. And what I initially loved about this series was that it took these 
characters who embodied traits that we as society deem good, um, admirable things to achieve, and it punished them. (laughs) So the most, you know, the very beginning, I'm going to have some spoilers here, people. So if you haven't read these books or you haven't seen the show, but you want to and you don't want to have spoilers, then don't listen anymore. For the rest of you, I'm going to tell here. So the first one follows the storyline of the Starks, the first book, uh, the Starks and um, um, the Baratheons, who essentially led this rebellion to win the throne, the Baratheons. Um, and, you know, these, uh, the you open the story with um, Eddard Stark, who is uh, the Lord of Winterfell, this northern territory. And he is the embodiment of every hero. So he's honorable. He's just. He's good. He's a little flawed. He has a bastard son. Um, but the more you get into it, it wasn't really a like this horrible thing. Like, you know, it's you know, cheating on his wife and stuff like that. The more you get into the story. He really is the embodiment of what a man should be. Uh, honest and just and, and rightful and, you know, like, like a Boy Scout, essentially. And by the end of the first book... Because he was so honorable, because he did things the right and just way, spoiler alert, it cost him his head. So you have these really righteous individuals being murdered. And meanwhile, the self-interested individuals, the connivers, the sly, they're the ones winning. They're the ones in positions of power of influence, of control. It's, it's, it takes the traditional fairy tale, which is the hero goes to save the um, princess and everything is happily ever after, and throws it on his face. Plus, it's heavily steeped in politics between the different families of Westeros and outside. And if you love politics, then you are forced to love this because it, it is nothing but politics, really. You're talking about uh, different families vying for control, trying to play the Game of Thrones, you know, and, and the winner of the Game of Thrones gets the throne and gets to rule, gets to be in charge. Um, you have these individual characters that you see traits of yourself in, which in- initially draws you in, and then you see them behaving in ways that you would never even conceive of. And so it sort of pulls you away from those characters. So you, you go through the story liking one character and then turning against them the next second. And it jumps between situations dependent from uh, chapter to chapter, depending on whose perspective this chapter is being told through. It's really, really fantastic. And one of the traits uh, that I've seen of his writing style is he'll, in one chapter, make reference to something that's happened and you really kind of want to know more about. And then chapters later on, he actually goes from that perspective and explains what happened. And so you sort of get tied in and you begin to, to... see a grander vision of what this world is. Um, very much like our own, in that um, we are individually motivated. Um, we are as flawed as we are um, powerful and of, of worth. We take one step forward, and most often, two steps back in, in reaching our goals. We are our own worst enemies. Uh, it, it's just... There is so much to love in this story outside of 
the sort of excitement and adventure of the story itself. And if you just want to take it from um, a, a, a critical sort of uh, historical family perspective, this guy went through crazy lengths of tying this world together, m making it a fully realized world. Um, with its own religions, its own politics, its own lineages that, that span literally thousands of years. Its histories are immense. And it, it was wonderful because what he didn't do was say, well, this is the absolute history. This is how it is. And, you know, you just have to accept it as a reader. What he does instead of that is saying, well, this is how these people see the history, and this is how these people see the history. This is how this religion sees the history, and this is how this religion sees the history. And so there are no absolutes. There's, there's no like, well, this is the way it is. It's always, this is how it is through this character's eyes. And it's amazing that way, because then you are allowed the ability as a reader to choose your own team rather than saying, well, this is the book's hero. I'm going to follow that and say, okay, this is the truth. You're allowed to choose the, the religion while you're reading it that you like the best and sort of champion it through it because it does have a, it, much like American politics. Religion has a lot to do with it. And so you, you get to know some really in-depth things. And then there's some parallels with groups of people. So you're, you know, Europeans, you're uh, Asians, you're uh, uh, Indians, uh, you're, you're, you're Nordic. Um, there's a lot of, you know, sort of parallels with um, different cultures. And, and he has, as much as he's done a vast array of, of different religious backgrounds and historical backgrounds, there's a, a richness of culture in this series. Whether you're talking about the Dorns or um, uh, the Westeros as a group, uh, and the, the, the Essos cultures as a group of people, you break it down by region, then you break it down by city, you break it down by family territory, and they are so dramatically different that it really does lend believability to the story. Um, and it starts very much in a realistic world where, no, there are no bad guys or, or you know, supernatural anything. There haven't been dragons for hundreds of years. And who knows, it might have been a myth. Um, religion, well, you know, we say these things, but it doesn't really mean anything. There are no real gods. It's just something we do. Um, there are boogeymen beyond the wall, but we never really know because no one's seen them for thousands of years. It's probably just a tale created. And then slowly, chapter by chapter, book by book, you're brought into this real fan fantasy-centric world where there are giants and there are demons and there are dragons. And it's it's so exciting that you're brought in gently that way rather than just being thrown at it. And, and then you're brought into it in that way with the thick religious, with the thick social, with the thick um, political layers carrying it. It's, it's fucking brilliant. I mean, this is an amazing series. It, it, it's one of those things where I'll listen to a chapter and I'll call my wife and say, did you, did you hear that chapter? Because holy fuck, I want to talk about this. It, it, it encourages discussion and you can always find parallels of yourself and your own thoughts in it. And you sort of extrapolate that into evaluating choices you've made or choices you will make. Any good book will force you to question um, common thoughts that you've always had. And this is one of them.
this series of books. So definitely, if, if you love rich fantasy, if you love politics, if you love a fully realized uh, world that forces you to question what, if you were there, what is right and what is wrong, um, and then really takes a realistic look at behaviors and saying, well, you may be a good person, but that doesn't mean you're going to survive. Uh, it's really fantastic. So I, I definitely recommend it. I cannot recommend it enough. Go read this. You will not be disappointed. And you know what? That is going to do it for another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Download the show Mondays via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 cents via iTunes by searching 9 cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And the only way this podcast is going to live is if you tell a friend. Share 9 cents with your friends, your enemies, hell your grandmother. Let's build this podcast together. Help spread the word. Once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I am your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week, hail Satan!